It was around noon when the rust-coated sign that marked the town's entrance came into my view. Sighing in relief that Google Maps hadn't failed me, I guided my car off the main road and down one of the concrete paths that led through the woods and into... Orbita. For those of you who haven't heard of it before, Orbita is a ghost town that was designed in the image of Pripyat, the satellite city for the Chernobyl power plant. Much like its inspiration, it too would have served as the closest satellite settlement for a planned nuclear power station, but the project was cancelled in the wake of the 1986 tragedy. Currently, there are only around a hundred people living there, bearing the occasional squatter that remains unaccounted for and, well, something altogether different, apparently. As the dense forestry began to recede, I was greeted by a set of presumably abandoned high-rises, their uniform, brutalist aesthetics standing in defiance against the unkempt vegetation surrounding them, a jarring contrast between nature and industry. After graduating university, I started getting into urban exploration, which conveniently coincided with my passion for photography. At first, I was joined by a small group of friends, but they clearly saw it was more of a one-off adventure and weren't willing to travel beyond the few vacated sites that were close to where we live. Despite being strongly cautioned against it, I began setting out on my own, scouring the Ukrainian countryside for places that embodied that post-societal vibe that I was so determined to capture. I had already built a sizable portfolio by the time someone on a forum I was frequenting tipped me off about this place called Orbita. Given that my goal at the time was to eventually visit the iconic exclusion zone around Chernobyl, it seemed like a decent starting point. No bypassing security outposts or hopping over fences required. Excited, perhaps unreasonably so, I parked my Volkswagen next to what looked to have once been a corner store, retrieved my backpack from the passenger seat, and stepped outside. The air smelled humid from the recent downpour, which had thankfully dissipated to a light drizzle, nothing my hoodie couldn't protect me from. Something crunched beneath my boots, causing me to wince and look down. A layer of shattered glass covered the streets, glinting against the wet asphalt and sprinkled around other fallen rubble. As far as I knew, and also judging by the comparatively decent condition of the nearby playground, there were a handful of families still occupying some of the houses and five-story flats, which reminded me of old-school dormitories. I had no intention of trespassing on other people's property, so I kept my attention solely on the conjoined nine-story apartment buildings that made up the majority of the ghost town and were clearly abandoned a long time ago. Flashlight in hand, I felt immediately in my element from the moment I walked through the dilapidated entrance hall. The ground floor was in about as good of a condition as you'd expect. I had to wade through literal heaps of trash in order to get to the stairs. Some of it looked recent, and included items such as condom wrappers, beer cans, discarded needles. I wasn't about to pick through any of that. The eroding walls were covered in crude graffiti. All of the classics from so-and-so likes to suck giant cock to abandon hope all ye who winter here. And of course, a few tastefully scribbled swastikas for good measure. Places like these usually reek of human waste, so I was glad that there wasn't much of that at least, with the exception of a few suspiciously tinged corners. 
Fresh signs of vandalism and squatting persisted as I skipped past the first couple of floors. The corridors were narrow and had doorways spread evenly on each side, leading into decent-sized apartments compromised of two main rooms. Often the walls divided them had either crumbled or hadn't been raised in the first place. In the interest of preserving daylight, I limited my exploration only to the sections that looked somewhat lived in. I won't lie. After a few hours, my enthusiasm had definitely fizzled out. It wasn't like I went in expecting to uncover some mind-blowing piece of Soviet history, but I couldn't even find anything worthy of a memento. Each floor was near identical to the last and had been thoroughly cleared out, leaving only mounts of construction debris behind. I was surprised that some of the exposed rebar hadn't been ripped off the walls, too. I only had time to explore a single complex, of course, but I somehow doubted that the neighboring ones had much more to offer. Eventually, I made my way onto the central roof, where I spent another hour or so indulging in some amateur photography, for which the gloom of dusk provided a suitable backdrop. Just thinking about the long drive back home caused me to internally groan. Had I not spent the last year of my life poking around in similarly abandoned places that had a lot more going on inside them, perhaps the trip would have found a lot more worthwhile, but as it stood, I was pretty deflated over having wasted my Sunday. I shoved my camera back into its nylon back and glanced down toward where I parked my car. That's when I noticed it. There was a head sticking out from the window right below me and facing the same direction I was. Though the thing's hairless scalp looked almost human in shape, the neck that connected it to a pair of narrow shoulders was over twice as long as it should have been. I could see its crooked spine jutting from beneath a thin sheet of flesh. It was as if the creature's skin was a size too small and being stretched over its bone structure. Its ears were pressed to its skull and deformed, almost vestigial, but apparently worked just fine, as I saw it tense up when I snatched a small gasp. I could already picture it bending its oversized neck in some sickeningly awkward angle to look up at me, but instead it suddenly retracted back inside like a serpent slipping back into its hole. My initial shock gave way to an overwhelming feeling of primal dread. I retreated slowly from the precipice, hands jittering and legs feeling stiff. I didn't dare move another muscle. A horizontal slab of concrete was all that separated me from it. Well, my body refused to budge. My brain was working on adrenaline-induced overtime. Had it been lurking below me the whole time? Had I passed it without even noticing? Whatever the case, I would have had plenty of time to process the gaunt humanoid's existence once I was back on the road. I forced my limbs back into action, heart drumming in my ears as I jogged across to the outermost connected rooftop. Like hell, I was going back through the way I came up. Instead, I recalled seeing an alternate staircase built against the nine-story building's external side and divided by platforms for each floor. I remember chewing, even biting into my lower lip in an effort to subdue my panic as I gingerly cleared the first flight of open steps, only to be reminded of another small detail. 
Each individual landing had a door that led back inside, and all of them also happened to be missing the actual door part. My chest felt tight. What if that thing was patiently expecting me to walk by so it could drag me in, kicking and screaming into its lair? Assuming it didn't just tear into me on the spot anyway. Cautiously, with my shoulder pressed firmly to the wall, I edged closer toward the gaping entrance, steadied my breathing, and stuck my ear out to listen. There was nothing but the sounds of wind rustling through the partially peeled wallpaper within. I had to do this. There was a fleeting sense of relief as I swung by the dimly lit corridor unimpeded. I think I kept my eyes shut the entire time. Even if there had been something literally standing there watching me as I blindly stumped past it, I would have rather not known. My hands reached for any solid surface they could find in an effort to stabilize my descent. A few of the steps had crumpled down to beams of metal wire or were missing entirely, forcing me to jump over the gaps. The subsequent floors I cleared using the same method of pausing, taking a few seconds for the adrenaline to kick in and then rushing by while hoping that the cold tingle on the back of my neck was just sweat. I was over halfway to the bottom, and though I was still scared out of my mind, the feeling of progress provided some much-needed encouragement. I was so close, and I nearly convinced myself that the danger was never real to begin with. Unfortunately, Orbita wasn't quite done with me yet. A sudden force, no doubt originating from the yawning darkness behind me, shoved me toward the edge of the second floor landing. It was like a proverbial rug had been pulled down from under me, only there was nothing but a free fall waiting beneath it. I never even saw the ground coming, I only felt it. Felt as my feet absorbed the impact first, and then quickly buckled when the rest of me came crashing down. There was a cracking pop in my ankle, followed by a surge of pain that traveled up my right leg. I would have screamed had there been any air left in my lungs. The whole world was spinning. I couldn't tell up from down all the terror from before finally bubbled to the surface, exploding in a frenzy of raw emotion and panic. I dug my fingers into the mud and began pulling myself toward my car. The rain had soaked through everything, leaving me to desperately claw through the pliable soil in hopes of sustaining a grip. I split my nails on rocks, uprooted fistfuls of grass, grasped for anything that could help bring me closer to my sole means of escape. Though I was in too much of a manic state to stop and inspect the damage, I could tell that one set of toes wasn't pointing in the right direction. Shards of glass and who knows what else shredded through my arms and torso. I crawled along the asphalt necks, leaving a gory smear across the street and up the sidewalk. Wheezing, I propped my back against the grimy bumper of my Volkswagen and began patting at my pockets. Thankfully, the keys were still in there. Operating on pure survival instincts, I had somehow managed to hobble over to the driver's seat where I proceeded to fumble with the ignition. The sound of the engine starting came like it answered all my wordless prayers. The headlights flicked on. I slapped my injured palms over the cold steering wheel and then pressed my forehead to it as well. A concoction of tears, sweat, and blood rolled off my chin. My head was ringing as if someone had fired a gun next to my temple. 
I was drifting in and out of consciousness. My vision was getting foggier by the second. I couldn't afford to pass out just yet, though. Looking up, I half expected to be met with the figure of my assailant standing in the headlights. But the path ahead remained mercifully unobstructed, at least as far as I could tell. The sun had long since dipped behind the impenetrable tree wall that surrounded the town. Darkness descended upon me like a suffocating mist. Mind-numbing pain radiated throughout the opposite ends of my body, making it near impossible to think rationally. There were pieces of glass protruding from my forearms, which the incessant blinking of the dashboard made sure to highlight along with a strip of flesh hanging from one of my thumbs. The sight alone left me feeling lightheaded. I didn't need a doctor to tell me I was losing a lot of blood. I had a first aid kit in the trunk, but before I could even entertain the idea of going out and retrieving it, a sudden thump to the top of my car whipped me back into my seat. The entire vehicle shook from the initial impact, followed by the creaking of the suspension as whatever had landed atop began to slowly shift its weight around. The roof sagged beneath the creature's mass, clearly outlining its position. Not that it seemed to concern with subtlety anymore. Once again, was there a barrier between us, though this one didn't feel nearly as reliable. I heard disgusting, muffled squelches over the droning of the engine. My heart sank to my stomach. By the time I felt the thing's presence concentrated right above my head, I'd already started hyperventilating. Only for my breath to get stuck in my throat when a pale hand pressed against the upper corner of my windscreen. It possessed only three fingers, neither of which looked opposable and ended in bony talons. The creature tapped its claws against the window. It was toying with me, taunting me to come out of my flimsy little box and face it. Even if I felt suicidal enough to comply, fear had firmly rooted me in place. The tapping turned out to be a distraction, however, as another one of its appendages effortlessly shattered through the rear door glass. Shards exploded over the back seats. Something long, pink, and flexible started squirming its way inside. A final surge of adrenaline coursed through my system. I grabbed the shift stick, put the Volkswagen into gear, and slammed my broken foot over the gas. The pain was indescribable. I shrieked in agony as the car lunged forward. The creature's hand was forcibly retracted from my field of view, leaving only scratches behind, and I heard the distinct sound of my unwanted passenger hitting the pavement outside. I refused to waste even a second looking back and just kept driving. I had no intention of slowing down until I was out of those godforsaken woods and orbit it was nothing but a dark, distant silhouette. I can't say how far I got until I eventually blacked out from all my injuries. I also can't tell you the name of the man who found me and drove me to the nearest clinic. I'm not sure what happened to my car. I think it's probably still out by that road with the most of my equipment. I might go back and try to retrieve them someday, but it won't be anytime soon. I can't tell you what the creature in those buildings was, or even give you a full description of it, but to be honest, I don't think I want to know. My imagination can fill in the blanks just fine. What I can tell you is that most places out here usually stay abandoned. For a reason.
When Sean asked me to hang, I still had no interest in eating. The wounds were still fresh in my mind, like the first car accident you had, or getting fired from a job when you knew it wasn't your fault. Amanda had taken what was hers, pulled everything out of our place within my eight-hour shift at work. Her flock of kitchen gadgets, her massive DVD collection she'd alphabetized, and her coldness. She had ended our shallow affair with the text message, and in the end, I knew it was for the best, and I couldn't blame her for leaving. I was too ashamed to admit to myself that it was a mistake, that I'd only been with her because I didn't want to be alone. I couldn't hate her. She'd been in nursing school for the last year, one of those accelerated programs where she did most of her stuff online and drove across the state once a week to sit in a classroom and prove that she knew the material she'd studied religiously. I spent that weekend getting drunk on Captain Morgan and Bud Light. Then Sean called and we wound up at Baxter's, one of the local sports bars, so new and also so familiar to anyone who's ever been in one. They mostly are the same. Beer specials, 30 or more TVs, flirtatious servers, and a large outdoor patio for smokers and those who wanted to enjoy the fresh air in other ways. That was the first time I saw it. We were on the patio and Sean going on a mile a minute about the latest girl he'd slept with. I was half watching ESPN News and half listening to him. Michael was managing that night. His red hair was a stark contrast to the blue polo he was required to wear. His face, which normally bore the mask of confidence and authority in front of his employees, morphed in front of me and suddenly I saw him as another manager trying to wrestle with his job and manage the everyday crap that he saw. He knew he didn't have to demand respect from me. I gave it freely. Hey Chris, how are you? I smiled at him. He tolerated a lot of my crap but knew I treated his employees very well. I'm okay. How's the business tonight? <laughs> Crappy. Nothing to watch on TV, no games till tomorrow. Just college lacrosse, and earlier we watched the 1983 College Basketball Championship. Again. I grinned at him, seeing all the empty chairs in the place. I'd hoped it'd pick up. Sal came in and sat next to me. He was about as New York Italian as you could get. He spoke in compact words, not wasting someone's time with fluff, and had a built-in knowledge of cars that was mystifying. Most times he'd come in with Patrick, a stubby guy who looked like he would burn if you even talked about the sun for more than two minutes. Sal once introduced him as his business partner. They would diagnose cars as they went by, giving ideas for what was going on with them mechanically at the moment and what monster was waiting around the next corner for their owners. They both have their glasses halfway to their mouths, pausing, listening as something sputtered or purred by. Their synchronicity was fun to watch, and I think I learned more about vehicles listening to them than I ever got from my old man. Since we were so close to the tourist strip, we had our fair share of confused drivers who stole side glances at their GPS, clogged intersections, and people who would try to cut across two lanes of traffic to make their turns and only make things worse for those behind them. And then there are the cabs. Mostly yellow, black phone numbers on the sides that only consisted of three different digits. 
Their names were knockoffs of the brand most people knew. Checker, Shekher, etc. They were also the ones that you can tell people kept in their driveways and most likely didn't have the proper license, but their phone numbers were stenciled or painted on the signs, so I guess that gave them some sense of legitimacy. This was a few years before the ride-sharing revolution allowed anyone to stick a sign on their car and download an app. The cops never challenged them, and I was never sure if there was some unspoken rule on cabbies. A large sheriff's deputy who looked like he could bench-press my car pulled me over for doing three miles over the speed limit one day. He wrote the ticket with deliberation while two of them had sped by, trying to bend space and time with the power of their engines and the heaviness of their foot. This one was different. It was larger, like it was a large van, made for at least a dozen people, but with heavily tinted windows and no sign that it was even a business. Sean was on my right and Sal was on my left. Sal must have had the day off. This wasn't his usual night to be there. He stopped as it went by, his head cocked slightly like his ears were hearing a faint tune he barely recognized. I listened with him. The engine was different. It had a faint buzzing to it that seemed to shake your bones. I remember my skin breaking out in goose flesh. Maybe it wasn't even from this planet. I wish it had been that simple. I watched it go by and I strained to see a driver. My eyes met black tent. I continued with my 12 ounce curl and took a sip from my glass of Heineken. What's that? Someone asked. Sean looked down onto the streets, head three sheets to the wind, and saw nothing unusual. He was dressed in an adamant retro shirt, cuffed jeans, and a cheap white belt similar to what my father had worn when he was in the Navy back in the 80s. A black vest that looked three sizes too small for me, but fit him perfectly, completed his ensemble. I couldn't knock it. It worked for the ladies. He regularly layered alcohol over Xanax whenever he was here and liked to brag about his sexual exploits. The flame blew around his short black hair and did nothing to stop the beads of sweat from his brow. He could sweat bullets in a snowstorm. It's just another cab, Chris. Sal asked. Where's the sign? It went around the slow bend ahead, skirting what was left of the strip mall. Where's the phone number to call dispatch for it? I interjected. The bug had spread to me. I shifted a little, got up and took a few steps, and craned myself over the railing, projecting the drunks from the road. This was a glorified strip mall, anchored by a local grocery store with inflated prices that peddled to tourists. Baxter's was close to the end, next to the Argentinian steakhouse on the end. Behind everything was swamp water, a family of feral cats and probably a monster or two, but there was no proof of the latter. The vehicle was gone. I sat back down, deciding to get some hot and spicy boneless wings. Sean called me a couple days later. I was at a red light. Dude, remember the other night when we were at Baxter's? You know what guy disappeared from the grocery store? I looked up at the light. The sensors on this one were crappy. I could be here a while. Really? Yeah. His wife and kids were inside the place. He left his wallet in the car and went out to get it and then boom! I wasn't that interested. I listened politely, then 
turned it around, asking him if I could borrow a copy of The Expendables. It wasn't until I saw the paper the next day that it made me stop and think. Police found that the guy who had disappeared was a registered sex offender and had been molesting his daughter for a year. The story exploded. Even Nancy Grace got in on the act, citing the disappearance as a retribution and a way for the family to put the past behind them and begin the healing process. I was neutral. He was gone. That's it. No big loss. It was that first rainy day and night of the summer when I saw it again. My Pontiac was purring through the rain, the rhythm of the wipers working a great beat against the steely dance song as I took the curvy road between the hotels. Every 50 feet or so, the neon blaring of a sign for the Hilton, Holiday Inn, or some other national brand lit up the inside of my car for a microsecond as I cruised through another curve on the road. The sun was dying, and the sodium vapor arcs of the streetlights were casting an eerie, effervescent look as the street wound and stretched between the rows of hotels. I couldn't imagine the room rates of some of them, but you paid for the convenience of being so close to the theme parks. It came up behind me in the coming dark, and stayed on my tail as I drove, weary of the red lights that seemed to be every other hotel. They changed quickly, giving everyone a big surprise, dropping brake pedals to the floor and mechanical screams. It had been raining, so it was really a bad idea to have that happen when the oil would be pooled on the surface of the road. You could slide right into someone else's path and could ruin someone's day. Regardless of what the tire shop told you they would do to your stopping power if you spent the extra 80 bucks apiece. Florida weather doesn't read warranties. Doesn't shop for tires. It doesn't care. The headlight lit up the inside of my car and I thought I could hear music from inside it. It was playing an old Sinatra tune I didn't know, but I knew Frank's voice, even being hungover. I couldn't mistake it. I tapped my brakes a little to see what would happen, and it backed off. Only if I'd known then what I know now, I would have attempted to break the sound barrier with my granddam getting away from that beast. I would have wiped any cabbies in front of me off the road. The light changed, and I towed the brake pedal again, this time for real. I stopped, almost expecting the van to run into the back end of my car, but it stopped with me. I glared at the red light, feeling this pressure on the back of my neck and head. It was like someone was grabbing me in an attempt at choking me out. I looked to the left and then the right. There were no cars at either side of the intersection, so there was no reason for the light to go red. These were set on a sensor, not a timer. I could hear my steely dance CD spinning in the player and I felt my mouth go dry. I reached down to turn up Babylon's sister when the small red digital readout scrambled. That's the only way to describe it. Strange symbols came across it and Kid Rock blared from my speakers. I fumbled for the knob and killed it, suddenly aware that I was sweating. My stomach did a slow roll like that time I was dragged on my first wooden roller coaster when I was visiting Hershey Park when I was a kid. The inside of the car had gotten very hot. I reached out and touched the dashboard and felt like I'd been sitting in the sun for several hours without my shades in place. My mouth had become glassy and the air tight. 
like one of those random mental ghost thoughts, my brain leapt back to Sunday Bible school back in New York. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed is he who tries to bring heaven to earth. I wish I'd paid attention more. I was raised a Methodist. Now I wanted to be Catholic and have a crucifix to touch. Maybe not. It probably explode with all the crap that I've done. I was once an atheist and said this when asked, but I had a hatred for life at the time. Maybe that black cab was for me. Maybe not. Whatever it was, that thing wasn't of this earth, or even heaven for that matter. In my mind, there was only one other option. The light turned green and I hit the gas more than I should have. I wanted that thing away from me. Something blurred by me and I realized that it was gone. My CD had come back on and Walter Becker was tearing out a riff. There was nothing around me and I felt cooler like someone had turned on my AC. I reached down and turned it on, feeling the pores tighten in my neck and shudder rack my body and my great plans to save some money and go straight home went out of the window. I needed a drink. The dollar pints of the cheap stuff called me. I went back to Baxter's. Rachel was behind the bar. Her eyes glowed in the cheap yellow lights. Sean asked me out. She gushed while setting a pint in front of me. Bastard. Her tan skin and piercing gray eyes had always mesmerized me. She was mine, not his. I felt my gorge rise as jealousy hit me over the head and pulled my soul out of me. He's so gorgeous. I smiled at her, attempting to be civil in a situation that it's replayed in my life continuously. I was always the friend, the guy who could never buy a date even if I had a thousand bucks cash. Girls would see me withdraw, wrap myself in my life while I began to ignore them. That's my life. I guess my sin would be envy. I was there too late, and drank too much, and spent the next day hunched over the toilet, twisting into an emotional knot, seeing her face every time I closed my eyes. Something clicked within me that day, and I looked at myself in the mirror, saw past the acne scars and rolls of fat, and made myself a promise. It was over three weeks later when I returned to Baxter's. Things were different. I'd stopped caring about what I could do to get someone to sleep with me. I'd started with a run-walk routine for about 30 minutes every night and found I could sleep a little better. I let calls from Sean go unanswered. I didn't need the details of the date and the standard physical act that followed it. He knew what he was doing. The black cab dropped from my consciousness as I reworked my diet to try and lose a few pounds. I joined a gym that was open a few hours after I got off work, and I'd received some help with developing a weightlifting routine. I was on a rest day when I showed up at Baxter's. Deanna was tending the bar that night, her long black hair clamped to the back of her head by a giant hair clip that was leopard-spotted. She streaked it purple, and her Batman knee-highs had given her short legs attention they richly deserved. They were gray, the bat logo on the front, and little capes over her calves. They cracked me up the first time I saw them, and they still brought a smile to my face no matter how crappy my day was. I haven't seen you in a while. She smiled at me. <laughs> I've been busy. She smiled again. Yeah, you've been working out. I can tell. You've lost weight. I couldn't do this forever. I needed a change. 
I sipped the blue moon. No more cheap stuff. Yeah. You've heard about Rachel? The name had not been on my kind for a while. No, is she okay? She's been really quiet for a while. Michael had to talk her out of quitting three times this past week. But she wouldn't say why. I haven't seen anything of Sean either. I plucked the orange rind from the rim and dropped it into the glass. They had a date, but I haven't talked to him lately. She's so smitten with him. But she's a small town girl and he's a player. There's nothing but trouble there. Her eyes sparkled from the glare of the TVs and her slightly purple hair blew around her head. Her cheeks were sallow, glistening in the lightning between the edge of the bar. The bottles of vodka and empty glasses became miniature lights themselves, scattering the light in the dark corners of the coolers, the dishwasher, and the small fridges. If she was smart, she would have dated you. She winked at me and I shot her a smile. I wasn't interested anymore. I've become a work in progress. She's in at seven. Maybe she'll talk to you. I got a game board for one of those TV systems some places have and was trying to boost my pot and poker up to 10,000 imaginary chips when she came in an hour later. She quickly walked behind the bar, dropped off her bag, ignoring the greetings she was getting. Her eyes tore around the bar when she saw me. Her eyes were laced in pain and I knew that someone had done something really bad to her. Hi. She was reluctant to have eye contact. Now I really was worried. Uh, hi. Are you okay? She shook her head. A tear wandered down her cheek. She turned away from me, but I gently grabbed her hand. I wasn't giving up on her. What happened? She looked into my baby blues and spelled it out. She burst into tears. Her body shook as she let it out. I listened to her intently. Black feelings washed over me, and I was glad I never took any of Sean's calls. I let her go, and she went inside. I sat there for a long moment, trying to figure out what to do. An itch settled into the inside of my head, and I slid off the utilitarian metal stool and looked out into the parking lot. It was there, right on cue. I'd been keeping an eye on the paper for the last few weeks. Six people had disappeared from the area, all of them criminals, all of them bad people. Crime had dropped, like social consciousness had shifted and people had decided to become better to each other. I'd done some checking and found the black cab was seen in different places. Detroit, Camden, L.A., where things were at their worst, it suddenly had shown up. There were memes dedicated toward it, warning people that any social faux pas would usher in the black cab into the neighborhood to clean things up. There were some blurry photographs that perfectly matched what had driven by us that night. Was it a warning from God, like Sodom and Gomorrah? Or was it something else? Sean showed up 30 minutes later. He was already a little drunk and plopped down next to me. 
Where have you been? I, uh, been getting some stuff done. I was trying not to drag him off the stool and start punching him, but I had a better idea. Dude, I went on a date with Rachel. Man, it was fun. He pulled out a cell phone and started showing me pictures. She had been abused in a bad way. He gave me a sick grin. I'm going to sell these pics to one of those porn sites. Man, she's so hot when she's naked. He grinned. And I heard it coming. The soft hum of the engine made the windows vibrate and my heart stopped. Turning to him, I said, There's something in the car I want to show you. Deanna came around, saw Sean, and walked away. He gave her the finger in response. Rachel walked out the door and froze when she saw him. He spotted her. Grinning, he said, Hey, baby, want to hang out again? Next thing I knew, she was on top of him, hitting him with rabid punches. He fell off the bar stool, smashing his head on the edge of the bar. He caught himself before he hit the floor, his left hand catching himself on the stool next to him, his sense of self-preservation finally awakening. People began shouting and someone came running. I got between them. She was hysterical, and I looked her gently in the eyes and said the most powerful statement I had ever made at that point in my life. I'll take care of this. Sean was shouting about how he was being assaulted, and I was able to push him out the gates of the place into the road. You raped her, I said it loud enough for everyone in the bar to hear. Beer glasses stopped halfway to mouths, and I plucked the phone out of his hand and tossed it at Michael, who was standing outside the gate. He looked like he was ready to throw down with both of us. He looked at it and stared at Sean. You bastard. I'm calling 911. Sean looked at me, called me a really bad name, and headed for his car. Then it was on us. It came up behind Sean. The door was open. It was only for a second, but that was all I needed to see. I ran at him and gave him a shove that sent him sailing toward the black cab. Sinatra flooded out into the streets as something in black grabbed him. I saw the driver. It was someone I'd seen in my past, but whose name I couldn't remember. His face was red. A smell of burnt hamburger and clicking noises filled my senses. I thought I even saw him grin at me and tip a torn, faded 1940s cab driver hat in my direction. Then the door was closed and it drove away with Sean. Sin was sin, and if he was not meant to be taken by the black cab, it never would have taken him. Michael ran up to me. Why'd you let him escape? I got the cops on the way. I didn't. They'll never find him. None in this world. Stunned, he stood there. His face went red and I stood behind him, looking in the direction he was. The black cab rose from the streets in a low arc and, like a diver, disappeared into the ground. We could almost feel the ground ripple a little, like it was a diver dropping into a shallow lake or some pool somewhere. Others saw it happen. They'd come out from the patio into the road to watch the show. One burly guy who I'd seen there before crossed himself, plucking a crucifix from under his shirt. He kissed it with shaking hands for a moment, the lights in the parking lot blinking at once. Chris, your tab's on me tonight. 
Michael wiped his face with his hand like the rest of us. He didn't know what to think. My mind hit a blank wall. I couldn't reconcile what I had seen. Was the fabric between our reality and hell that thin? Could it be pierced that easily? And was it also that thin between us and heaven the same way? I didn't know. I sighed. If you don't fire Rachel, I'll let you pay for it. Done. We walked back to the bar. Rachel hugged me, and after a few months, she became my girlfriend. And now she's my fiancé. We're moving out of the area now, going back to small town New York. My buddy up in Jersey has been left to business by an uncle he hardly knew in a little town near the base of Adirondacks called Wings Falls. He's willing to sell it to me for a cheap price. Turns out Rachel's family is from Gilderland and it's just down the road. Never seen that black cab again and to be honest, I don't want to.